where you're experiencing God should not be nearly as important as the fact that you are experiencing God. This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Well, hello there. It's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the One Verse Podcast. I am pleased once again to have a guest on the show today. We're going to invite Richard Jacobson into the show real briefly. We're sort of in this series where we're looking at several key words from the gospel in the Bible, and we are in talking about the word fellowship right now. So I introduced that to you last week, looked at a couple passages from 1 John, and today we are going to invite Richard in to talk about Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, this idea about not forsaking the fellowship or the assembling of ourselves together. So if you've ever had that verse quoted at you, or maybe you've quoted that verse at somebody else because they stopped going to church on Sunday morning or something like that, then this is the discussion you will not want to miss. We're also going to talk real briefly about Richard. He's got a fantastic book out called Unchurching. He did a TED Talk. He's got a comic book on church, on uh, you know, leaving church or discovering church in a brand new way. So we'll be talking about all of that with Richard Jacobson. And then make sure you stick around at the end. We'll figure out how to how to connect with Richard, support him, and even join his online community that that is super active and exciting and everything they're talking about and doing. So, without further ado, I'm just going to invite Richard into the discussion here. Richard. Welcome hey, to the One Verse Podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we've known each other for, I don't know, a couple of years now at least, right? Maybe longer. Oh, yeah. I think a good bit longer because I started um, I started publishing my cartoons and animated videos in 2014. Yep. And I don't think it was too long after that that you and I got connected. I got connected to Keith Giles and you uh, pretty early in the process. So that was probably 2015. And you were the, what, church anarchist back then, right? <laughs> yeah, I didn't put a lot of thought into what I should uh, label everything because I was just going to, you know, put some videos online and put some cartoons online. And, uh, you know, I'm an 80s kid, you know, so, um, you know, the, the whole anarchy thing uh, was cool in the 80s and it was very anti-establishment. I didn't really think about that as being a very politically charged term because I didn't mean it literally. Uh, so yeah, I, I did church anarchist for a while and then just got tired of answering questions about, <laughs> about the name. <laughs> but what are you an anarchist? Yeah. I think I remember seeing some of the comments you left on my blog back then. And I remember thinking that very thing. Yeah. Anarchist. That and people also, when you glance at the word anarchist, uh-huh. a lot of people, uh, on their first pass would think it's an antichrist. <laughs> right. Yeah. The church antichrist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, I'm coughing. I'm just getting over a really nasty germ. That's fine. It's fine. Yeah. No, I remember, I remember all that. Um, in fact, I, I probably did a double take on that for myself that first time with church and you, <laughs> you, you know, antichrist anarchist. So, oh my, you've probably been called similar things though, haven't you? As uh, you oh. teach and write about uh, everything you do regarding church. Oh yeah, I, th- I had somebody. Um, one of my posts, uh, probably last month, um, somebody posted this Latin phrase, and I had to look it up. Uh, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, but it was uh, "vede retro satana," which is like the 
Latin for get thee behind me, Satan, which is apparently <laughs> the first part of like an exorcism ritual. Uh, uh, <laughs> wow. So, yeah, setting the tone real early for this interview, I guess. <laughs> well, all right. So before we concern too many of my listeners who might not be uh, familiar with you, uh, affirm to them that you are Orthodox and Christian and a follower <laughs> of Jesus. Yeah, that, I, that I'm not anti-Jesus. Right. No, I'm very pro-Jesus. I was... Uh, I was a kid who grew up in the Jesus movement with uh, radical hippie Jesus freaks, uh, lived in a Christian commune for a while, uh, eventually uh, started attending institutional church, um, at one point was very, very involved as a church volunteer, eventually became a pastor. And yeah, I've, I'm walking very strong in my relationship with the Lord, very strong in my faith. The things that I question and challenge are and of course this is why you and I are friends are many of the same things that you question and challenge which is just the institutional structure of church and how it confuses a lot of believers in terms of their identity as the church they begin to look at church as something separate from themselves which is not at all what scripture teaches you know we are the body of Christ not this organization or this building or this program we the believers are the body of Christ and that's that's really the root or, or the main theme of all of my work is just having that conversation. So even the term unchurching, um, even though it sounds polarizing, it's actually not anti-church. It was inspired by the uh, homeschooling movement. The early proponents of homeschooling referred to their, um, their movement as unschooling. And we don't have to unpack that, but I just wanted to kind of make a comment on that. Right. Yeah, people who are unschooling, that's not mean doesn't mean they're not giving school to their kids. They're just teaching their kids in another way at home. Yeah, yeah, they're and they're definitely not anti-education. Right. Uh, which which was, you know, the misunderstanding early, you know, with a lot of the early homeschoolers because they they wanted to take their kids out of school. It was like, "Well, why are you anti-education?" It's like, "No, we're pro-education. We want education to be 24/7. Mm-hmm. We're trying not, to give our kids a better education." That's it. We want them we want continual education, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when you make edu- when you connect education to a building and a program and a, and a specialist, then you're basically telling your kids, well, education happens in this room during these hours. And, and that's it. You know, when, when the bell rings, you're no longer being educated. Yeah. And I saw, and I saw a, an incredible parallel there with the way that we think about church. Yeah. So, you were teaching and writing, and initially you were creating sort of tutorial videos, or not not even tutorial videos. These were well, well describe these videos you were making originally. Yeah, they were. Uh, you know, the term that I hear the most is explainer videos. Mm. You know, they're they're just basically little uh, four minute teaching videos where I tackle a topic, and they're uh, animated, right? This is not just a talking head. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, there's just too many talking heads on YouTube, and I and I wanted to do something that would stand out. Plus, I love to draw and animate. And I, you know, just needed an excuse to use some of my artistic skills, and so I created these little animated explainer videos that just tackle things a topic at a time. Um, it really came out of frustration where I'd been trying to write this book for. Uh, it was about 15 years before I finally published it. And it just wasn't coming together because I couldn't really just figure out how to connect all these ideas. So I just said, you know what? I'm just going to tackle them a topic at a time and make these discrete little videos that don't have to be consumed in any particular order. And that actually helped me work through the ideas and 
And, you know, once the video series was done, and we're talking only like maybe 20 videos, at that point, I was ready to start working, uh, take another pass at working on the book. Yeah, you're fantastic at graphic design. And oh, thank it, you. it really shows up in those videos. And I know you've almost got a job lined up, but if anybody out there in the listening audience is looking for a fantastic <laughs> <laughs> graphic design artist and illustrator, and you pretty much do a little bit of everything in that realm, and you're, you're an expert at it. So oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And so those videos are still on YouTube, right? Yeah, can they watch are. Them? Yeah, they are. I'm um, retooling them just a bit right now because, you know, again, they all have the old church anarchist yeah. label and I've, you know, thought, well, I need to, I need to get these kind of in line with everything else I published. So I've okay. been, you know, adding like an unchurching uh, logo to everything. Yeah. And so in, in just a couple of minutes, each one shows something really insightful, as a, you know, provoking a provocative question or makes an interesting um, observation about church and what Jesus really meant and how we can follow him. And, and so I, I highly recommend it. People want to go watch some of those videos on YouTube, please go look them up. And then out of these came this fantastic book, Unchurching. And it's sort of, I would say, uh, in the, the unchurching world, this organic church, whatever you want to call it, uh, people who have left institutional church, it's sort of, I don't know, the, the leading book on the topic right now. Wouldn't you say that? Um, I would like to be able to say that, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's true or not. Um, I mean, it's probably right up there with Pagan Christianity by Frank Viola. In fact, I was just looking uh, on, on Amazon this morning. You have over 100 reviews on the book, which is fantastic. That's so hard to get, over 100 yeah. reviews. None of my books have over 100 reviews, so well done on that. But then Thank down you. there in the also bot sections, it's it's your book, and then also bots have the Frank Viola, Pagan Christianity, and um, Church Refugees. Uh, the the one by those sociologists out of Denver, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, yeah, um, that the author of Church Refugees, uh, we've actually gotten connected online and um, had some really good conversations. Yep. He's a great guy. And then also you had uh, Wayne Jacobson's book down there. I think it was uh, Beyond Sundays or something like that. Now, now yeah. you and Wayne are not related, right? Richard Jacobson well, we and Wayne Jacobson? We are not related, and and you can tell we're not related because I spell my last name correctly. Uh huh. Son. S O N. Yeah. I'm just teasing Wayne. You know I love you. <laughs> uh, good. So anyway, it's a fantastic book, and um, it does it. It addresses some of the issues and concerns and needs. And why is this important in our society and culture today? What's going on in the church landscape today that makes books like this so important? Um. You know, there's a lot happening right now. The The short skinny version is you have millions of people who are leaving institutional church right now. But the assumption would be if, if you didn't scratch below the surface, oh, wow, a lot of people are really losing their religion. And that's not accurate at all. Maybe half the people who are leaving are losing their religion. But there are millions of, of believers who are leaving the institutional church who are not abandoning their faith. And I don't know what percentage of those, Josh Packard, the author of Church Refugees, could speak to this better, but a certain percentage of those are actually leaving because they're looking for a deeper expression or experience of faith. They're saying, sitting here on a Sunday morning listening to a sermon isn't doing anything for me. Like, like I, I read these incredible stories in the scripture about 
not just these incredible stories about Jesus Christ, but these incredible stories about the early church and what they were experiencing together. And there's this huge disconnect between the church I read about in the Bible and the church I'm experiencing on Sunday morning. And it's just not satisfying. And so they're saying, surely there's got to be something more. And so a lot of these believers are leaving in search of that, which is exactly what I did. And the book that I wrote came out of that experience, those years of searching. It's not a biography. It's not like a, a narrative where I, where I go through and talk about my journey. It's just all the things I learned along that journey. So the thing that I've heard the most, if you go, you, you mentioned the Amazon reviews. There's mm-hmm. over 100 reviews of the book. And it's got, I think, over a 4.5 star rating. Oh, yeah. It's so up around 4.8, 4.9, sure. Yeah, so most of those reviews are really glowing reviews. But here's the funny thing. If you go through and read them, or at least, you know, when I reflect on the comments that people have said to me personally, it's not like people are saying, wow, your book is full of so many things I never thought of before. I do hear that from time to time, but that's not that's not the norm. The, the thing I hear most is you were able to articulate the things I was thinking and feeling, but never had the language for. Yeah. Basically, there's this, I think it's a holy frustration where where God is kind of stirring up this desire in his people to have a deeper, more intimate experience, not just with him, but with their brothers and sisters, yeah. like to, to get back to this, this, you know, genuine form of community where, where Christ is at the center and we're experiencing him day to day through a shared spiritual life. And he's active. He's not, he's not just a doctrine. He's not a theory. You know, he's not, he's not our favorite subject, but he's in our midst and he's active and he's participating with us. I think he's, I think he's driving this because he's longing for fellowship with us that he's not getting, you know, it's not just us who are, who are deficient and kind of suffering in this church as usual sort of landscape. I think it breaks his heart because, you know, you know, he wanted to be God with us. He's the one who tore the veil, Mm. you know, who, who came as, as, you know, incarnated himself so that he could walk amongst us. You know, he longs to be present with us and there's just so many, uh, barriers between us and him in today's church structure. That makes a perfect transition into this concept of fellowship. You even mentioned it there once or twice as you were talking about that. So when scripture talks about fellowship, like we read in Acts to the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Um, when Luke wrote that, he had in mind sitting in a chair on Sunday morning from 10.30 to noon <laughs> so that you can sing a couple songs, uh, close your eyes during a pastoral prayer, and then listen to a 30-minute sermon, right? That, that's, that's what he's describing there, correct? Well, the funny thing is, if you read it through that filter, there's, there, there doesn't seem to be any contradiction between yeah. what we're doing in that verse. Um, you know, and that's, that's the scary thing, uh, right. Or that, that passage rather, uh, that's the scary thing is, is I don't think, I don't think most institutional church going Christians realize that they're reading the Bible through a lens of tradition. And Hmm. so tradition is informing their interpretation of scripture instead of scripture, um, being the lens through which they examine their tradition. Right. Yeah, if you don't realize there's another way of, another form of fellowship, 
or another way of interacting with God and Jesus and other Christians, then yeah, you could read that verse and think, yeah, what I'm doing on Sunday morning is the same thing they were doing in the early church. Yeah, and I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, our brothers and sisters in the institutional church are, many of them are approaching this thing from a very pure-hearted place. Sure. Um, I, I think we can just look at our own lives, those of us who used to fellowship that way, and say, well, I know where my heart was at when I did that. I was doing what I knew to do. It was only as God stirred up this discontentment in me um, that I began to think differently about things. And I think that's important because, you know, we don't want to turn the corner where, you know, I, I try to really make sure it's clear that I'm criticizing the system and not the people in the system. Yes. You know, we shouldn't demonize our brothers and sisters because, you know, the thing that the, the enemy wants is disunity and division. And we don't need to become another source of that. Right. No, that's an excellent point to make. We don't want to be judging or condemning people who are in that system. If that, if someone is in that situation and they are happy and content and it's wonderful and they're getting fed and they have friends and connections there, God bless them, then um, they should stay. And that is a form of church, which is fine and wonderful, and it works for a lot of people. But as you pointed out, there's these millions. I think you re- I read uh, in one of your articles somewhere, it's like upwards of 30 million just here in the United States— yeah, and that's a that's a conservative number. That's I was leaning on Josh Packard's work with church refugees. Okay. I have heard number. it's even as high yeah. as 60, 65 million. So yes. so maybe that 30 million is those who have quote unquote left but are still seeking uh intimate relationship with God uh and and, and other Christians in other ways. So yeah. Yeah. so I mean that's a lot of people that um you know, our, that Sunday morning thing it just doesn't work for them anymore. And God, I, I'm 100% with you, God is leading them. It's almost some sort of a, a spiritual revival of some sorts. God is leading them to experience Him and life with Jesus in a different way. Yeah. Um, then, then, so, so for people who are in that situation, especially if they still are going to the Sunday morning time, uh, but they're feeling that discontent, they're feeling like, oh, there's got to be something more, then maybe... Some of what you and I have experienced on this journey um, might be for them, right? That's sort of what we're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, uh, you know, you got to follow the Lord's leading on this kind of stuff. And I definitely don't want to create some sort of false dichotomy. You know, these things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. You know, it, the the answer for some people may not be, oh, I need to leave the institutional church in order to pursue this other thing. It may be, no, you just need to open up your home on Sunday nights and just follow the Lord's leading as he brings people to you and you start to explore these ideas together and then continue to do your normal Sunday morning thing. That's okay. Um, For, for myself, I really felt like I had to leave and I'm glad that I did because the, the process and I've heard people refer to it as detox, the process of really trying to get deinstitutionalized and lay down like all, all of that baggage, not just the routine, but the perspective takes a lot of work. Some people have to really, really process to get there. And so for me, I think that was a really good thing to do, um, even though it meant spending a long time alone in a spiritual desert. I think sometimes the spiritual desert um, gets a bad rap. 
uh, some beautiful things happen in the desert. I mean, just read about the Israelites' journey through the desert. They experienced God in a profound way um, that was actually very beautiful, even though in their minds, the desert was a means to an end. Oh, we can't wait to get out of this desert. It's like, well, don't rush that process. You might learn a lot about yourself and a lot about your God while you're there. <laughs> Absolutely. Huh. Okay, so let's transition to this Hebrews 10 passage then. I remember when I was a pastor, and by the way, you were a pastor as well. I don't know if that if we've mentioned that yet. Yeah, you you weren't just some pew warmer, right? <laughs> uh, like me, you were a pastor and started having some of these questions and concerns as a pastor of a church. Um, and one, so, one of the pastors on staff at a church. Okay. Was senior pastor. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. And um, I remember when I was a pastor, uh, there was a, a, a family who, for whatever reason, they came and visited my church one Sunday, and we were a really small church. So this was, uh, I was the pastor, the only pastor in this small community church. And so I was desperate to get people to come to church on Sunday mornings. And so I would always have them fill out that visitor card with their contact information. And then usually on, you know, sometime early in the week after I would make a follow-up call, hey, thanks for visiting, you know, so on. That was usually Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, and, and so I had this guy and he's like, yeah, you know, we heard some good things about your church, but we usually just, we're sort of a home fellowship and we're part of a home fellowship. And so we don't, we don't really want to do that Sunday morning thing. That was my first exposure to this sort of, I didn't even know about house churches back then. This was, oh my, close to 20 years ago now, I guess. And, uh, and I remember so clearly on the phone quoting Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 to him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, you know, you shouldn't forsake the assembling. And he's like, and he said, he said, well, and he was very gracious about it. He said, well, I have a different understanding of that verse than you do, I think. I'm like, what? <laughs> there is no different understanding of that verse than mine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It means go to church. Go, it means go to church, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, this yeah. is the only place where the assembling or the fellowship takes place here on Sunday morning with what we're doing. And if you're not doing that, then you are disobeying God. And sometimes that verse does get tossed out that way. Um, oh yeah, but is is that and I did it myself. So is that is is that what the author of Hebrews was saying there, or what's going on in in this passage that we want to sort of briefly talk about? Well, um, you know the the word there, and I uh, definitely would butcher the uh, Greek pronunciation, but the word that he's using there for assembling, and I'm using he in the generic sense. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Mm. Um, means a gathering together in one place. And kind of the secondary definition under that is, you know, a religious assembly. Um, or, or at least that's what we believe it means. You know, that word's only used in two verses in all of Scripture. Yeah, it's not but, the normal word for fellowship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, koinonia, I don't, that's not the word being used here, so. Yeah, exactly. And when, when, whenever we talk about the assembly you know, um, we're talking about the Ecclesia. So, Mm -hmm. so the writer of Hebrews is talking about, um, you know, some sort of intentional gathering of believers. And Paul talks about, you know, in, in his writings, he talks about, you know, when you come together as the Ecclesia. So there's, there is something about, they're doing something. 
you know, mm. uh, that's the most, the most broad stroke you could, you could paint. They're doing something that isn't just hanging out. Um, because here's where the conversation gets muddy is because the author of Hebrews is talking about um, having an assembly, but you know, the ecclesia is the assembly. And so sometimes things get a little bit muddy because you get in these weird arguments about, yeah, but we are the assembly. So, you know, when I go to um, Starbucks with my friends, I'm fulfilling Hebrews 10, 25, because it's just, you know, wherever believers get together, there's the assembly. But if you dig into what the word means, it's like, no, they're doing something intentional. And Paul acknowledges that. So, but you can overcorrect and say that in order for that to be whatever the writer of Hebrews is talking about, you actually have to go to a special building and, you know, there has to be a priest or a pastor presiding over some sort of liturgy or order of service or whatever. And there's no, there's no precedent for that scripturally uh, that I can find, you know, there's no order of service. Yep. Um, there's, there's, I mean, not that we have to get into this, but there's not even really, um, there's not a single pastor um, in the New Testament in the way that we understand a pastor uh, or priest, um, you know, so there's a lot there left open to interpretation and, you know, depending on which side you want to argue, it would be hard for you to disprove that a family gathered together around the dinner table, you know, praying and reading scripture is doing anything different than what's talked about in that verse. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. And I think I point out, uh, I think in one of my books, and I don't know, I can't remember if you, if you talk about this in yours, cause you did bring up the word that's used there. Uh, and it's this, uh, epi synagogue. Yes. So, um, and obviously the author of Hebrews, I sometimes suspect, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. You, you sort of mentioned this too. I sometimes suspect the author of Hebrews is a woman. <laughs> and that's why yeah. it was left yeah. anonymous because, you know, back in that culture. Anyway, side, that was a tangent. Um, but um, uh, uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to the Hebrews, the, the, you know, the Jewish Christians. And so it's funny that, that uh, the verse uses this word synagogue there. So all these people who want to use this verse as, a, you know, we can't stop doing what the author of Hebrews is writing about here. Well, we all do. None of us go to synagogue. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the New Testament word for quote-unquote church is, as you mentioned, ecclesia. So anyway, um, but yeah, the synagogue was sort of the Jewish church. And, and in that time, it could, it didn't have to, but it could take place in a building on Saturday, typically. Um, but, uh, it doesn't, it didn't have to, they needed a minimum of 10 Jewish men. There's all these other things that were related to it also. But, but aside from that, yeah, you look at the activities that were taking place and it is intentional as you brought out, but it could take place. In fact, most Jewish families were expected or part of their traditional culture was to do this sort of intentional fellowship, whatever you want to call it in the family unit. That was first and foremost where this took place, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's uh, interesting that you mentioned the, the fact that 
this letter in particular was written to the Hebrews. And so it's kind of touching on the way the, the Hebrew Christians um, were operating as what we would call a church. Um, and the way we kind of pick and choose and distort uh, this verse with that verse to fit our already existing paradigm. Cause yep. it's interesting to me that we, you know, take that, take those scriptures um, that describe the early church in the book of Acts that acknowledges the fact that they met together daily in their own homes and, you know, they met together in the temple and we go, ah, see, so this is, we, and we try to translate that to over to American Western Christianity and say, this is small group and Sunday morning worship in the sanctuary. And yep. it's like, that's as nonsensical as you can get. Um, this, this is, this is absolutely talking about the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And we know that because when uh, the, the disciples went out and started proselytizing Gentiles, they did not tell them to go to temple. Right. <laughs> you know, and we see the whole discussion unfold in Acts chapter 15, where they're saying, okay, well, what should we teach the Gentiles? And they literally say, here's the list of things we're going to tell them. And this whole idea of temple is nowhere in that list. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, we we're again, the bigger issue is not really this verse. It's that we're filtering this verse through an existing paradigm and, and it fits very, because it's one verse, it fits very neatly into our existing idea that you have to go to church. And so that's what we make it mean, but that's not what it's saying. It's actually saying whenever you come together with other believers and we know you can do that in a home because that's what the first churches were, you know, the first, especially the first Gentile churches, they only met in homes. Yeah. You know, so the idea that we're even having an argument today over whether that's official <laughs> It's like, oh my gosh, that's that's uh, a that's a crazy question to even be on the table. Exactly. Yeah, I remember <clears throat> uh, my wife and I were just talking about this when I was in seminary. We were having this debate because a lot of the students there felt like there was no difference between what they were getting in a church building on Sunday morning and our daily required chapel attendance. And one yeah. of the requirements of being a student was to be actively involved in a local church, to be attending, basically, is what they said. Uh, they wanted us to be more involved in that, but that's a little harder to enforce. Anyway, so a lot of the students were saying, well, I'm not going to go to church on Sunday because I'm going to church five times a week in chapel, and yeah. there's no difference. Uh, and so uh, the, the, the seminary faculty came up with this thing on what qualifies as true church attendance— and ah. two of the things that they added were communion and baptism, which we didn't practice in chapel. <laughs> and so they said, uh, so if since we don't do communion and baptisms in chapel, therefore this is not church. <laughs> and uh, so now you have to, you do have to go find a local church to get involved in. And it's just again, sort of this example of as soon as you get this paradigm in your head of what church is and is not. Uh, you, you start to try to parse it down into what qualifies as church and what doesn't, and who we can say, well, they're not really attending church. And it just becomes um, 
just, I think, misses the entire point of, of the church that Jesus planted and started and how it's supposed to look and function uh, in, in our relationships and in our day-to-day living. Well, yeah, because it's all about control. Yeah. Um, it, it really becomes about uh, rules and measuring your brother and sister and policing them and evaluating them and, you know, correcting them. Um, and it's funny because, you know, the, the letters in the new Testament, you know, Paul's writings are full of these examples of, of things where we're supposed to disagree. You know, one, one believes that you can eat meat and one doesn't have the faith to eat meat. And so whenever you get together, you know, be a vegetarian for the day. It's not going to kill you. I mean, that's, that's, that's Paul's answer. Um, yet when he, you know, there's that part of us that wants to go, yeah, but which way is right? And, you, you know, like, like there's this, there's a spirit there that, that says, yeah, but, but settle the issue for me. And I think it's the same spirit that you see come up over and over whenever they're challenging Jesus. Well, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You know, is it right to do this or not? Is it right? You know, it's a religious spirit. Hmm. That's that's the thing is whenever whenever we find ourselves you know wanting to to really you know argue um like these finer points of doctrine especially it's a religious spirit and it's very clear that it's not really possible to walk in intimacy with Jesus and not have that religious spirit confronted continually. And so you have to make a choice. You have to choose between Jesus, the person, Jesus as your Lord, um, or Jesus as religion, Jesus as an idea. Um, and, and Paul says some things that are kind of provocative on this matter, you know, cause he says, well, one person considers this day holy. Another person considers that day holy. And his answer is really profound. He says, each person should be convinced in his own mind. Hmm. It's not, let's get in there and hash it out and make a creed so we can separate the Saturday people from the Sunday people. It's, hey, your brothers and sisters, you're not allowed to divide over this. And not only should you, you know, respect the other person, but each of you should be convinced in your own mind about what you're doing, you know, and he takes this idea further when he talks about anything that doesn't come through faith is sin. It's like, hold to your convictions, live, live your convictions. But where we start to turn the corner is when we, when we start trying to say, now everybody else has to believe all the exact things I do at that point, it's not about Jesus anymore. It's about doctrine. And I understand, you know, this is probably triggering some people who are listening to it going, yeah, but aren't there some Essentials. Absolutely. Absolutely. Paul talked about if anyone comes preaching another Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, he warned against that. But I would argue the essentials are 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 one thing. It's Jesus. Like yep. Jesus is, you know, the essential. And and when I say that, I'm I'm connecting other things to him, like like who he is and what he did. And you know, sure. but G- Jesus is what we must agree on. And then anything else you're going to have a hard time convincing me um, that that 
matters in terms of your salvation. You know, like if you've got the Jesus question answered correctly, my understanding is that is criteria Mm -hmm. for inclusion in the kingdom. That if you get that part right and the rest of your doctrine is screwy, um, then you're just a believer with screwy doctrine. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely right. Yeah. And I think we all fit that definition in one area or another. Oh, sure. We're all screwy in our doctrine somewhere. (laughs) Somewhere. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. Good. So, okay. So let's just say you're speaking to somebody uh, and they are either, we'll just sort of end with this. They are either in a traditional Sunday morning church setting, but they're feeling frustrated that there might be something more that maybe Jesus is leading them to try something different. Or they have done that, but they're not finding friends or fellowship or those connections out here in in the real world that they were looking for or hoping for and they've been out here for a couple of years um and and they they want desire this this fe- friendship this fellowship with other christians that they sense their desire in their heart and mind um in, in either way what what would you tell them what they should do or you know what even hebrews 10:24 to 25 says to them or what you know just how do you how do you counsel that person um well there's probably a few questions in that um as far as if you're in the institutional church and you're feeling frustrated and what should you do it's got to be the lord's leading um and it's real easy to convince yourself that the lord is leading you because you're offended um because you've been wounded because you've been uh, whatever. And by the way, I'm not advocating that you stay in a legitimately abusive situation. That's a no brainer to me. If it's truly abusive, then we, that shouldn't even be a protracted conversation. Absolutely. You should, um, you know, have the courage to change that situation in some fashion. All right. And, and feel the freedom in Christ to do so. Don't let somebody guilt you or manipulate you into thinking that you have to stay in something abusive. So I'm going to kind of set that off to the side. You know, it's easy to just get rubbed the wrong way and then try to say, oh, the Lord's leading me. But also the flip side of that is very often he can't get us to change our situation without ruining it. If you look at the example of the Israelites, you know, God sent plague after plague after plague after plague um, before he sent the final plague that would convince the Egyptians to set them free. He could have started there, but I don't think it was just a matter of, of mercy toward the Egyptians where he didn't pull out the big guns first. I think he was actually going through a process of dissolving that relationship because even once the, the Israelites were out in the desert, even after all of that trouble, and they had said to Moses, like these continual plagues are making us a stench in the nostrils of the Egyptians. Like, like basically you're making them hate us. But even after all that, what did they do once they got out in the desert and realized, Hey, you know, we don't know what we're going to eat today and we don't have a roof over our heads. Well, they started looking back at their slave masters thinking, well, maybe it wasn't that bad. So God sometimes has to ruin our current circumstance and burn our bridges or we'll cross right back over it. Mm -hmm. Um, now, once you get out there, if you go, wow, this isn't what I 
thought it would be. This isn't what I signed up for. Well, again, that's kind of what the Egyptians went through. They, they spent 400 years in slavery imagining what freedom would be like. And then when they got out in the desert, they went, well, this isn't as fun as I thought it was going to be. Um, and so if you're results oriented, if you're thinking, oh, God's going to set me free from this, or he's going to call me out of this so that I can go experience that. And you have made an idol, you know, you have this idealistic idea of what you're going to enter into. Uh, that's a dangerous thing because what he might be calling you to is a life in the desert. You may or may not even get to the other side. This may be a multi-generational work. Hmm. And so your part in this drama may be to cover a certain amount of ground in the desert and prepare that next generation for something that you will never get to see or hear or experience uh, personally. And I know that's, you know, discouraging um, to hear, but again, that's why I think the desert gets uh, kind of a bad rap because if you look at the beautiful experiences that you can have, the intimacy that you can have with the Lord in the desert, all of all the, the, the circumstances are, are negligible where you're experiencing God should not be nearly as important as the fact that you are experiencing God. Mm. Like, like why, you know, it's like this uh, despising the day of small things. And I would say that doesn't even necessarily apply to this because when we're talking about experiencing God, that's no small thing. Why are you so upset that you're having this profound experience with the Lord in the desert versus the promised land? Then your eyes are clearly not on the Lord. You know, you're, you're, you're just comparing one land to another. Well, I'm telling you, if that's the lesson that you're learning out of your time in the desert, you're not going to enjoy the promised land either. And you're never even going to really experience it because he is the promised land. It's not a place. It's, it's, it's finding our rest in him. So that's really just a long way of saying this whole thing, front to back, top to bottom, is all about Jesus. The only reason he's maybe potentially um, calling you to anything different I guarantee you, without knowing the particulars of his plan, I can tell you what the end result is. It's for you to be more intimate with him. That's always his agenda for everything. I can always tell you what the end result is as far as what he's doing in your life. He's drawing you deeper. That's all he ever does. And so if that's not what's happening, then the signals have gotten crossed somewhere. Wow. Well, that's wonderful, isn't it? We always look for some of these externals things to happen in our life, and we miss what it's really all about, the fellowship yeah. with God and the relationship with God, the experience with God. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's difficult in the wilderness, but um, you know, you look at all of the people in Scripture, the Israelites, even Jesus himself, Moses, Abraham, everybody had this wilderness experience, and um, there's something about that experience. And, and, and then even as you said, it might not, whatever you're headed towards, it might not be for, for you and for your generation. It might be for a future generation. And that can be discouraging. But as long as we view the reason why we're there, because uh, this is where God wants us, then we can experience life with him and uh, patiently wait for whatever he has for us next. And I would argue that if you make Jesus the center of everything, that Christian community is the natural byproduct. You know, the desert fathers, if you ever read church history, they literally ran out into the desert to just get away from all these things that were happening in the institutional church. And because they were really pursuing the Lord, they ended up 
with all of these people coming to join them. And then pretty soon they had a thriving community and then they had a whole city. So this idea that you, that you have to go to a place is, you know, that you have to join a pre-existing group. You know, that's the question I hear all the time is where can I find a group like the ones you describe in your book? And I say, you're, you're missing the forest for the trees. If you make Jesus the center of everything, then you can't help but be surrounded with fellowship with other believers because they will be drawn to you. Hmm. Wow, that's fantastic. Sweet. <laughs> Richard, I'm sure that after listening to this, people are going to want to hear more and learn more. Um, and experience more as well. So where can they find you? You know, we talked about the videos, but, but explain where else you can be found and more resources like this that are available to people. Yeah, I've, I've been, I guess, laboring in this field for a few years now. So I've got a ton of interesting stuff. I have some cartoons. I have animated explainer videos. I have an online comic book. I had, you know, some of my um, supporters came together and helped me fund a Kickstarter to produce uh, a comic book. So I, you know, and I did um, print a limited number of physical copies and I still have some of those if people are interested, but you can actually read the whole thing online for free and you can share the link with other people for free. So this isn't a sales pitch. Um, I've written a book that you mentioned, Unchurching, uh, that birthed a podcast called the Unchurching Podcast. There's a lot of resources, a lot of material, a lot of stuff that I've produced Bottom line is if you can remember unchurching.com, you can literally find all of this stuff. You know, it, it goes out to other places, you know, it'll point you to the book on Amazon and it'll point you to the podcast on iTunes and so on and so on. But the hub uh, where you can kind of jump off into all of this stuff is at unchurching.com. And we even have an online community, um, you know, where people, uh, where I post um, upcoming events and things I've had, uh, meetups in various cities where we've gotten people together. Um, I hosted a national conference once, so there's no telling what I'll be up to by the time your listeners hear this. So if you want to keep up with all that, just go to unchurching.com. Yeah, fantastic. So unchurching.com, and I'm looking at the website right now. Yeah, right up top, you have the book, you have um, a blog, you have the forum. So you have the online forum through your site, and then you also have sort of a Facebook group community as well that people can join, correct? Yeah, although we're kind of transitioning back to Facebook, um, oh. everybody loved the the forum better in terms of functionality, but in terms of habits, it seemed like nobody could kick their addiction to Facebook. Yeah, so everybody's on Facebook, and that's where a lot of the communication and conversations happen. So yeah, hard to break that habit. Also, yeah. uh, I see that you you are on Patreon. Anybody who wants to sort of support you and your work um, can find you on, on Patreon as well. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Patreon.com slash unchurching. Yeah. And don't forget the TED Talk. That's available oh, now yeah, on yeah. YouTube. And it's been viewed, whoa, thousands yep. and thousands of times already. And that's just the YouTube video. Before, it was just on the TED website, right? And you had like a record number of views from, from, um, from that as well. Well, it was on the, the Facebook page for the college that put on the event. Okay, yeah, that was it. Yeah, it did really well. Um, you know, it, 
in in our circle in this little niche that we're in, it's a respectable number of views. It's fifteen thousand views. Um, in the TED world, you know, of course, that's a drop in the bucket. Yeah. Um, but you know, my hope is um, as I continue to produce more and more stuff. I mean, there's there's a potential audience of thirty million out there. There's the, the and that's just in the U.S. There's thirty million believers who've left the institutional church, who've not abandoned their faith. That means almost one in every ten people you pass on the street. So if you're feeling alone, statistically speaking, that's impossible. And so the question you should be asking yourself is, if I feel alone, why? 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 Like, if, if I always challenge people, the next time you go to Walmart, when you walk from your car into the Walmart and back, count the number of people you pass, then divide that number by 10 that is the number of people just like you that mm. you probably could have run in today, mm-hmm. uh, run into today. So again, I think we can get the cart before the horse and make it about trying to find, Oh, how do I find these people? How do I find this group? I think if we double down and really focus on Jesus, um, there's a potential revival coming because numerically the numbers are there. You know, we just have to have something to rally around. And personally, the only thing I want to rally around is Jesus. Yeah. Fantastic. So look, if you want to learn more from Richard Jacobson, there is a wide variety of resources available to you. The book, the podcast, the TED video, the other explainer videos he has on YouTube, his online Facebook group. If you can't remember all that, though, just go to unchurching.com and choose your own adventure there. Richard, thank you so, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. I know we've been talking about this a long time, but it was great to finally have you on the podcast and, and be talking just about what Jesus is doing in the world and in your life and my life. And um, I look forward to seeing you again. Yeah, thanks, buddy. It was a pleasure. All right, thanks. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.